Thank you for that music. I thought those first two songs were just so appropriate, at least to my mood, and what I needed to sing. So this has been, you know, just a very difficult week. I know you're troubled. I can't remember a time when my mind has raced as much as it's been racing. You know, I found myself throughout the week after Wednesday uh, just not able to go prepare my sermon, the sermon that was prepared. And some of it was because it was probably one of the more busy weeks I've had in a while. <laughs> Lots of things, boards, meetings, things like that. But, but most of it was because of my spinning head. And honestly, not a small degree of cowardice. The fact of the matter is, I just did not want to preach. Really didn't want to preach. I don't have that sentiment much, but I really felt it. And I just could not bring myself to, to walk into this room and subject myself, quite frankly, to everyone's expectations. And, um, of course, but uh, so life goes on, and I find myself at night. This thing's going in and out. I'm not sure why. I find myself on Friday night, late at night, going, you know, sleeping, sitting in my bed, restless as I have been for the other nights. And just literally, uh, a spirit of dread hit me. I, I can't put it off anymore. Tomorrow morning, I got to get up and write this sermon. And I went to bed with that dread and woke up. And, and then something that, that came to me was something that had been just circulating in my head, as you'll hear, which brings me to this passage. And that's when I woke up at 4.30 and Saturday and said, okay, Lord, I submit, I will be done, and yep, I'm going to start all over again. And so that's where we are, and we need to pray because uh, we need to hear, I think, from God. So let's pray. Father, we need your grace. Transport us into your heavenly throne. Give us eyes to see what you see. Give us hearts open to receive it. Father, so much we love your word. A word that is from above and not from below. So direct us even now as we seek to apply your word to our present circumstance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let me just start by saying this. What happened at our national capital this Wednesday was evil, wicked, and horrifying. But of course, you already knew that if you have been absorbing the teaching of this church over the years. But before you let your mind race with reaction to what I'm about to say, would you hear me out? I've done my very best to tune out the surrounding noise, both from within myself, our church, and the noise of our church, and especially the culture at large. I have God, I've prayed to God over and over again, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in thy everlasting way. That's not to say that you should hear this word as infallible. It isn't. But at least to know that it comes with a, a sense of gravitas and a sense of reality that, that I don't want this sermon to participate in the noise. And I don't want it even to participate in the noise of my heart. And so to help me, I've tried to ground everything I'm about to say in Scripture. And it's to check my heart and mind, I have also submitted what I am about to say to the scrutiny of my church, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, has passed down in their consensus statement about what the Scriptures principally teach, as summarized in the 350-year confessional standard we know as the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. You should know that I, like all ministers of the gospel in our tradition, have taken a solemn vow 
Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? And do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as contained in the system of doctrine, as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, that you will, on your own initiative, make known to your presbytery the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow? And with real solemnity, I did say yes to both. Often my vows have put me in tension, not only with the world's expectations of me, but honestly with you as well. Perhaps more often felt your expectations of me, not intentionally, of course. I don't mean that with any bad spirit. Really understand me. Just knowing the content. Why would you know the content except that I have taught you, or we have taught you as pastors, both of the scripture and the confession of faith. Hopefully as thoroughly as one who has taken a vow to submit oneself to his teaching and to his will. So I will say what I'm about to say by way of introduction to our sermon, and perhaps laboriously to some applying my understanding of scripture as summarized in the Westminster. I should note that while I feel comfortable saying these things in the present context of a sermon, these are probably not things, as I think you will understand after the sermon, why I would publish them without the context that we have here. Therefore, you know that, that I wrote a letter to you and published it on the internet as well. And perhaps there were things there you wished I'd said. I suspect there were. I hope you'll at least see the excruciating care that goes into what I say publicly and why. But with that in mind, let's, let's stop and pray. So Father, we need you again. Please come, speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. So yeah, <laughs> what happened at our Capitol Wednesday was evil. It was a sin what the person Donald Trump did when he became an enemy of the state and the enemy against the office of the presidency. By inciting an insurrection of violence against a lawfully appointed government, all the more sinful insofar as he is a person called to properly execute the office of the presidency in service to the state. It was a sin against his political inferiors. By inferior, I'd taken a word from our confession not to suggest your person is inferior, but in your role within the, gov in the, in the life of the, of the society, one who is under or in subordination to others. It was a sin against political inferiors as citizens of the state and especially his supporters who entrusted him with the task of governing the common good for all people of all faiths and none when he lied and trafficked false hopes, especially those who might have felt marginalized and hopeless in the world. As a sheep without a shepherd, they wanted and they voted for their shepherd to lead them. And I say this whether political or left, right or left, to leverage their hopelessness and despair for the sake of personal ambition and power and glory. Concerning the fifth commandment, and by the way, these are based mostly on what I personally heard him say at that um, gathering before what happened with the insurrection. I say these things concerning the fifth commandment. The sins of superiors, those in positions of authority, fam whether it be family, church, or state, by the way, three lawful institutions that God has appointed by what we call positive institution. The sins of superiors are, and I'll take it slow, besides the neglect of the duties required of them, which I have not read to you, but the sins are ease, profit, or pleasure, command, uh, commanding things unlawful or not in the power of inferiors to perform, counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in that which is evil, dissuading or discouraging or discountenancing them in that which is good, carelessly exposing or leaving them to wrongdoing, temptation, 
or danger, provoking them to wrath, or in any way dishonoring themselves or lessening the authority by an unjust and indiscreet, rigorous or remiss behavior. Now this is not to excuse those so tempted and incited by him. It was likewise a sin, however incited or prompted by their president, for some of the citizens of this state to commit violence and insurrection against the lawfully appointed government of the state. In this case, our Congress and our House and Senate. And to do violence against fellow image bearers of God. I don't need to tell you, I know you've heard it, what that violence has been. And again, I don't say this lightly. I say it only upon the authority of the Holy Scripture and especially the Sixth Commandment according to our Westminster standards as to the requirements do all citizens of God and all people. For it says in Catechism 136, larger catechism, it is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment anything taking away from life, and I'm summarizing as you'll see, in anything that that instigates or leads up to in heart, words, or actions to the taking of life. All sins, then, that can lead to that. And here's the sins that are listed. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire for revenge, all excessive passions, excessive, notice the word, provoking words, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends towards the destruction of life for anyone. Even as it's clear that some were there to do harm with perhaps even evil ideologies and desire, probably most were there to support what they thought would be a turn in the election. But before I go on, I want you to hear me. I feel just a deep sadness to say this. It was sad for me to see the temple of our commonwealth sieged and desecrated. More so it was sad, I think, in the spirit of Christ to see with compassion a people so torn apart, as I see it sadly in the church as well. And the temptation to speak with excessive passions against those who did it. Again, when I heard his speech just prior to the insurrection, my mind began to race. I remember nervously getting up out of the chair in which I was sitting, nervously walking literally almost mindlessly around the house, going to get a water, going to look outside, just trying to get rid of some nervous energy. And as I did this, and expect to, in the attempt to expel my emotions, I remember saying out loud as I walked to get a glass of water, something really bad is about to happen. And of course, I went back to work and came back and found out what had happened. And don't get me wrong, I don't equate the sins of a leader to the sins of the followers. I do believe that leaders are held accountable at a higher level. Their sins are in many ways greater. We owe them double honor, but we also, could you say, owe them double condemnation. I was furious. I was angry. It really grieves me and tempts me to great and unrighteous anger to see a leader of any church, state, or family abuse anyone. And I felt he had abused our country. But again, I've spoken to the sins of those who follow, who also have a responsibility to discern what their leader says and to act in conscience. I think it was and has been one of the great sins of the inferiors, however enticed by other media voices and leaders, civil leaders, and sadly too many church leaders, to have been violating the fifth commandment concerning our present administration, Trump, and for those who voted for him. 
Now, I should add here, and this is important, that this is no different than what I felt during the previous administration concerning our previous generation, of course, being Obama. In other words, I wrote in the letter, let's stop before we point the finger, and it's almost too easy to point it at our president. Of course, what he did was wrong. And perhaps, Evie, we would love to hide behind what was definitely wrong for those who followed his incendiary comments to do violence. But to be clear, for the Christian especially, as I wrote in the letter, our first impulse ought to be to examine ourselves. And to consider, as I asked you to do in the letter, a season of civil self-reflection. My point then is, if you were to ask what happened at our nation's capital last Wednesday, I think it'd be incredibly naive and wrong to dismiss what has been happening in every social context I can think of. And so I believe it was a sin in violation of the fifth commandment, the sixth commandment, and the ninth commandment, the propensity in our culture to incite insurrection and violence, both in digital and in personal ways against God's lawfully appointed civil government and against one another relative to a partisan-driven worldview and idolatry. And I say this not only in this present administration, but I say it as well for the previous administration and how many responded in that context. I believe it was a sin when any individual or potential or appointed leader of the state media family or church says words or traffic words such as to violate, for instance, the fifth commandment as summarized in the Westminster Catechism, larger catechism 127 and 128. I have taken a vow to believe it is an accurate summary, and if you've read it, you know that every word is cited in Scripture. But it was a sin whenever our words or actions neglected our duty to give our presidents, plural, or other leaders, all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior. Prayer and thanksgiving for them, limit, limitation of their imitation of whatever virtues and graces they have, willingness to obedience to their lawful lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense, and the maintenance of their persons and authority against attack, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love. It was a sin by actions or words in our hearts or publicly when we felt contempt for and rebellion against their persons and places and their lawful counsels against their persons and in their lawful counsel, commands, and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. As to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, as further explained by Jesus himself and throughout scripture, is to include both inward and out, out, inward thoughts and passions and outward acts and words. So as to include all those things that would even lead to and incite, thou shalt not kill. So against our presidents, plural, against our party members, another party member, plural, or against fellow citizens as to incite evil, if, when, according to scripture, as summarized in Catechism 135 through 136, it was a sin when in thought, word, or deed we neglected to all careful study and any, and any lawful endeavors to preserve the life of others and their reputation. Not just physically, but in all ways relative to their flourishing. By resisting, those are my words, by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of another. By charitable thoughts, by neglecting charitable thoughts, love or compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, 
peaceableness, mild and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries and requiting, or that means to replace or prefer good over evil. Likewise, it was a sin, whether in thought, word, or deed, felt to, when we fell to sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, provoking words, a quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to destruction of life and its flourishing. And finally, as related to the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. It was and is a sin against the truth as pertaining to our presidents, other party members, or fellow citizens, such as to incite evil by neglecting to preserve, promote truth and the good name of our neighbor, as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, and clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice. And in all other things whatsoever, maintaining a charitable esteem for our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing their good name. Think about that. Sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. That doesn't mean making excuses for them. It means applying grace to it, not impugning perhaps motives too quickly, things like that, just so you know. It doesn't mean doing justice or something. Concerning the discouraging, discouraging, this is what we should never neglect to do. I'm back to that. Discouraging talebearers, flatterers, slanderers, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need require, through keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. Again, it was a sin against the truth. As pertaining to our presidents, other party members, or fellow citizens, such as to incite evil. Hang in there with me, I'm almost through. <laughs> that is all prejudice against the truth, against the good name of our neighbor, especially, our confession says, especially in public judicator. Giving false evidence, suborning, which is presenting or listening to false witness. And interesting, we're just as required and accountable for what we hear, let ourselves hear. That's what we say. <clears throat> Undue silence in a just cause and holding our peace when inequity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others, but speaking the truth seasonably. In other words, we do speak truth into injustice, but seasonably. What does that mean? He's speaking there of Matthew 18, if you look at the citation. How and what procedure and process is it that you would do so, lest to slander publicly? Or maliciously to a wrong end, if we were to do that. Or perverting it to the wrong meaning. Lying, slandering, backbiting, distracting, tailbearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of others, envying or grieving at their deserved credit or of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their grace and infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting, as we do all this stuff about their bad report, they're talking, neglecting such things as are of good report and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others such as to procure an ill name. Whoa. We need to stop and think, don't we? There was a lot we could have reflected upon. What due diligence is required, for instance, to study and practice such as to not prejudice against the truth before we traffic it or believe it? Who do you listen to and are you even in a position to make a judgment? Our confession is asked. In what context do we speak truth as to be seasonable such as to accomplish the noble end of love 
both for the perpetrator and for the rest of the world. For the noble end we have heard about in the fifth and sixth and ninth commandments to preserve, if at all possible, a charitable esteem of our leaders and our neighbors and to be careful not to admit traffic of an evil report. And think about it. If you want to do a little soul searching, the confession says, yes, we should speak when we, under the terms that, I, that we've talked about, there's a time to speak and, and advocate, of course. But if we were to look over our thoughts and our hearts over the last, say, four years or, say, 16 years in various administrations, depending on your sympathy politically, would you see much reporting, much thoughts and reflection on those things which would be a good report of your political, let's say, adversary? Or would your thoughts, if they were for everyone to see, or even perhaps those you have made known to see, would others find in them an eagerness to report good for those who God has appointed over us? How often were you a talebearer of, of, of their shortcomings but not a talebearer, if you would, of their virtues. Did I and you, did we even have a state of mind caught in the passion of the political, may I say, idolatry of our, of our world? Would you even have had a mind to see those good things and me? Now, this is where I need to say this very clearly. Everything we've said is in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us free to be honest because we no longer fear God's or godly people's condemnation and rejection. The scripture says all have sinned, every single one of us. No one is exempt from a thoughtful reflection of their own lives. The good news of the gospel is that real and unconditional love ought to define our thoughts, our words, our actions, even as to how we relate to one another's sin. Many of us have perhaps naively, even thoughtlessly, unintentionally maybe, but ultimately out of a depraved heart. We have participated in what I could describe as anti-love, in the anti-love culture that we seem to live in right now that has such a lust for vengeance and for shame of others. But here I'm trying to tell you, don't be afraid of God. No matter how you measure up to your own self-audit. Uh, don't be afraid of God or of me or of your fellow Christian. We should all give grace to everyone, everyone, especially those who readily confess, admit of their faults and failures, praying God's grace to persevere in our becoming more godly as we become conduits of God's grace to one another, saying, I forgive you because we know God forgave us, not because he asked it enough or how many are, way, are the way. To say I love you, not because you've earned it. You don't have to earn it. I don't have to earn yours. We love because God loved the world. Be imitators of Christ, says Paul. So yeah, my first impulse, well, impeach him. I need to confess of that. If he did violence, put him in jail. And it was thought not with righteous anger. And to be sure, this well may be the right thing to do, impeach or even maybe prosecute, I don't know. But what I do know, it's not my place. 
it's not my place to decide. It's not my primary goal either as a Christian or even as a pastor especially, as an officer of the church. There are those who are under God's jurisdiction of civil authority that it is their place. And I will pray for them. And when opportunity, I will elect those that I think are of sound mind and of biblical as I know, as I can possibly find. <laughs> well, it wasn't long after I had had those thoughts, and they were thoughts that I had Wednesday, not long after all that I saw, where I truly, not audibly, heard the voice of God. And it really would not relinquish me all week. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so the voice set into motion a very somber season of self-reflection of myself, but also of us as your pastor, my communal self, we, the church of Jesus Christ, and how we should respond and that's when finally it dawned upon me that I need to change the sermon and preach on a passage that is incredibly applicable. Now, I've used a lot of time, and I'm glad I did, because we needed that. And I hope you'll go back and reflect on it. But let me somewhat briefly zip you through um, what this passage says. You can think in three parts. Is it wrong to desire vengeance? Part, the first one. Three parts. One, is it wrong to desire vengeance? The answer from God in Scripture is, listen, no. No. Is it wrong to desire vengeance? Part two. The answer is, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Yes, it is. We're going to need to discern distinction. And finally, what then should we do? And we'll get to what has become a cliche, as you'll see, how we should love or hate the sin and love the sinner. And that changes a lot. But let me get through it quickly. Is it wrong to desire vengeance? No, it is not wrong. Our passage began 12 verse 9, abhor what is evil. Even if it goes on to say, and I'll skip the part about repay no one for evil, because that's going to get to the second question, but it'll end up with vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance, you see, is the responsibility of God, and it is not evil. It is a good thing, and we should desire it ourselves if for God's glory and for the protection and the flourishing of image bearers. What is vengeance? The gist of it is to repay him with harm. Harm with harm. On the assumption that the initial harm was unjustified and that retribution is therefore called for. It is, in a certain way, payback. Retributive justice. It's interesting the synonymous parallel of the same word quoting the same text. By the way, that passage is quoting when it gets vengeance of mind, Deuteronomy. Very word for word, he, he quotes it. But in Hebrews chapter 10, we, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's a parallel there. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a prayer for justice and judgment. Is it wrong to pray for that and to desire it? Absolutely not. Vengeance is here then synonymous with facing justice, and justice is a good thing. We see it all through the imprecatory psalms. Those are psalms, as you saw at the beginning, those are psalms that pray for vengeance. I read it, you, you heard it read, how weighty, he's talking about all the glorious Knowledge of God being present in the world, not absent. That's the focus of 139, his, his omnipresence. He sees, he knows, he's with us wherever we go. And in that context of his omnipresence, he says, Oh, that you will kill the wicked, O oh Lord, meaning to destroy, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. 
the world, the earth. Now he's praying, I think, as an officer of the church of Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, ends the revelations, praying for the justice of God to finally put an end to evil and to curse it into this everlasting sea of fire. It's coming. It's real. I wonder if we really thought about what we are praying when we pray for justice. Would we still pray for it? Do you have room in your spirituality to really pray for justice, knowing what you're asking, potentially? That God would, I love, you know, in the, in the Psalms, it doesn't, doesn't put mince words. Kill off, destroy wickedness and the wicked. It's coming, sorry, with a vengeance. And the extreme language that is associated with vengeance is that ultimately all sins against neighbor are sins against God. Everything we've talked about, deserving of that. But the extreme perfection of God's glory is matched by the extreme purity of his justice. Thus the description of an eternal hell for all sins, even if against our neighbor is ultimately a sin against God, rejecting him and subordinating to him. So that's the first answer. Is vengeance or desire for vengeance wrong? No, it can't be wrong. For God promises it. Is it wrong to desire vengeance? Yes, it really can be very wrong. It is evil to seek vengeance, you see, as we'll see, and justice in a way other than to, I had a word and it just lost me, to circumvent the justice of God. Let me say it again. It is wrong and even evil to do justice in a way that would circumvent the justice of God, which therefore is a, an expression of a distrust of God, and a, an expression of unbelief in itself. And especially, as we'll see, a destruction of God's holy timing such that in his patience with love, he would provide it as much time as possible. For those to repent and to believe on Christ, that the judgment of God against them would be expelled, exhausted, propitiated upon Jesus Christ. So that there is no wrath left for them, only grace. The eternal nature of Christ, coupled with his human nature, uniquely equipped to sustain the wrath and yet to do it for humanity. That's the mystery of the gospel and of our Christology. And so, Paul says, repay. That is literally synonymous with vengeance, as you saw earlier. Literally used the same sentence. Repay, do vengeance. No one evil for the sake of evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God. What is honorable? He goes on to say, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so how might we take vengeance? Well, later on in the passage, you'll hear it read that for, for the noble thing, the noble dream, as he's going to talk about later, we're going to get to it, is, is ultimately summed up in the Ten Commandments, he's going to say, which is ultimately summed up in love your neighbor and love God. Love is noble. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is loving in the sight of all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. Now hold on to me, people. Don't you start going and with cynicism think that I'm going to say, so therefore we just live in a world of chaos and don't have any justice. I'm not going to go there, I promise. How might we take vengeance in this anti-love way? Well, I've already read them. 
sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distractive cares, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, whatsoever tends to destruction of life of any. I've already read it. That's what starts happening when we take it upon ourselves. Vengeance. So it leaves you to say, well, but Lord, okay, I got it. You're telling me to wait for it, right? Well, yeah, ultimately we're told to wait for it. It's coming. And if you understood just how drastic it will be, you would pause before you paid for it against another individual. But you would pray. But it would be coupled, you see, with love. I'm getting ahead of myself. An urgency to save them. Not an urgency for them to go to hell, following the pattern of Christ who is waiting patiently for us to repent. Think about that, that tone even. And so, what about justice now? Is God active in this world now to do justice? Yes, he is. And so this is exactly why the next item for Paul, after what we've just said, he goes directly for this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. That's why I said earlier, I have no place. I would be usurping, usurping God as by his mediatorial presence in, with, and through the civil authorities. And that's how I should posture myself. Clearly, in further explanation of vengeance's mind, saith Lord, it is clarified that there is a proper way for vengeance and justice now as under God's authority. Paul will go on to add, and quote, and those that exist in this rule, rulership or this rule of authority, and by the way, that's authority in the church, state, and, and family as related to their respective spheres, the spiritual gospel sphere, the church, the civil sphere of, of that common grace for all people of all faiths and none, and of course the family, which has a bit of both. And I won't go into that. It's part of the, the, uh, the evolution or the uh, developmental nature of institutions in the scripture. But what's, what institution then is Paul talking about? Just to be clear. What institution is it that he's saying? That's God's institution. Well, we get the answer, verse 4. He talks about this servant of God for your good. And then he says this. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoing. Pray for vengeance against evil and pray for our civil authorities and the whole system that serves that, our lawyers and our judges and all of that's going on there. But clearly it's not the church to transgress our sphere of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make such pronouncements, clearly. Listen to this. For concerning this power of the sword, and that is not a tool of justice given to the church of Jesus Christ, well, it begins pretty clearly, I think, with John 18. Simon Peter having a sword. That's really interesting that he was you know, packing, if you will, a sword. But he drew and struck the high priest's servant, and he cut off his ear. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Later he's going to say, this, this kingdom that I'm building, Peter, it's, it's not of this world. It's, it's not of the same instruments or tools or power. There's an outward and compulsory power of the state, but that is not the power of the church. I could fence this table and tell you who should not come and who should come, but never once would I lay a finger on you if you wanted to come anyway, if that's an illustration of what I mean. Rather, the sword of the church, as we know clearly in Scripture, the sword of the Holy Spirit given through the Word of God, it's a sword of moral influence and power. It's a greater power. It's a much greater power than the state. Because if the power of the state can at best compulse outward behavior, the power of the church is to transform the person. Alex de Tocqueville came to this state in the 19th century a great social historian, and he says, wow, the highest politician of the land is the church. 
for being separated, I'm paraphrasing, from the state, they now have the power of the heart. God forbid we give that up, church. God forbid that our passions could even be close to as much for that outward compulsory power versus that inward transformative power that has the power not only to, in a compulsory way, stop you, but has the power to change your heart that you might do whatever it is to do in love and in desire, cheerfully even. Such a great power, this Holy Spirit, acting through the word that is our sword. So Ephesians, when he talks about spiritual warfare, and he says, you're in a battle, Christian. You are in a battle. You are in this world, but you're not of this world. That means you have a different kind of power than the world does. Don't lose it. And how does he say it? He gives you this metaphorical vision of what a soldier would have looked like who would fight back in that day. And he comes to this, this idea of, of the, uh, the helmet that you would wear. You know, a soldier's helmet. Interestingly enough, he... He says it this way, so Christian, if you want to fight justice, if you want to fight and, have, and see vengeance, but to see it in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hmm that we could just see how powerful that could be. So the Christian, unless he or she is acting on behalf of the state, is authorized by the state under God's positive institution, it really can't be that we would take upon ourselves to execute vengeance in this world. And that would include, therefore, that all those things that pertain to it, thoughts, words, deeds, etc. There's a place for advocacy directed to the government, yes, by its citizenry. But that's different than making judgments ourselves. This again is Paul's point in verse 5. Here it is. And so, he says, live in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also the sake of conscience. Therefore, give respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. Don't circumvent. Don't subjugate. Don't push it away. Don't reject God's vengeance as it is being executed through the civil authorities. Don't take it upon yourself. And so it is a sin against the fifth commandment, as we've read, to do anything that would in any way impede the justice of God acting through the state for all people of all faiths and none. But that brings us to the third and final point. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. This is where Paul masterfully, you just have to go read chapter 9 and 10, second half of 9 and all the, and through the second half of 10. Remember, chapter designations aren't in the original text. And I think whoever initiated that text, that separation made a big mistake. But it's there. And if you read the Greek, you wouldn't see it. And what does he do now to tie this together? Remember he talked about resist all evil, do all things in love, etc. He comes all back around to it. And here's the line. Here it is. This is what I want you to memorize. In all of my... My thing is the only red I put in there, <laughs> just to illustrate. Do not, Christian, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with love. This has got to be the word of God. It's just got to be to transcend all the noise and to say something like that. This is so profound. 
So for instance, in 12.9, he began the argument, you remember, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. But what do you say? Let love be genuine. That's not to say we don't abhor evil, but let love be genuine. Hold fast to what is good. Good being synonymous with love. Love one another with brotherly affliction. Even if the evil is done against you, he goes on to say, verse 14, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Did you hear that? Love one another. Let love be genuine. Even if it's against you, this injustice has been done. You bless, seek to be blessing to them and do not curse them. The, the story that I've read that to me is the most powerful instances that I've ever read is the story of John Perkins and the way his whole life has lived that. You can go back and look at it. He's a, a great man in the civil rights era who was persecuted and abused like no one I've ever known and how he found the grace of God to overcome evil with love. So Paul goes on. He doubles down lest we would not hear it. He says, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. No one. See, we don't do that. He just said God does it. We don't do that. Repay. Vengeance. Same word or same two synonymous words used in same verses together in that way. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable, which is we note love in the sight of all. And again, he reiterates it. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, and there we have it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. To the contrary, Paul says, quoting, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Luke 6 says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. You know, one of the greatest the most courageous things maybe that you can do is when you speak to a persecuted community, but a community that has every rightful claim to be the recipient of injustice, as a pastor, to preach to them, love your enemy. Don't you think that would be the most hard thing in the world to do? It's one of the my favorite sermons ever preached in the whole world by Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta, Georgia. It's titled The Splinter and Plots. And he says this to Christians who are prone to condemn and judge their enemies. And he reads this passage, judge not that you be judged. I won't read the whole thing. And right here, what, were you, what was I expecting when I heard it? What was I expecting? I was expecting that he, in the context of his Ebenezer church there in Atlanta, a place I've been, a place I've seen, a place I've ridden my bike by, I know that place well. And I expect that he was speaking to the world, speaking to the world. Yeah, what would you expect? A condemnation, understandably, of the white majority and the many ways that we have judged our black brothers and we have for the problems rather than to judge ourselves, certainly that would have been warranted. But no. He didn't proceed to justify the condemnation of the white majority as he could have. He didn't, for instance, talk about a regard for how, with some exceptions, no other ethnicity was forced to come here than the black ethnicity, he called the blacks African-American, and how this sets into motions all sorts of systemic issues. He didn't go on to regard, no, he didn't go on to speak about the evils of slavery led to great wealth for one race while resulting in a great poverty for the other race and capital assets. All true things, of course. No, he had no regard for the Jim Crow laws that annulled whatever reconstruction, restoration, reparation had been originally promised after the war. He had no regard for how the welfare state impeded the African-American's ability to live self-sufficiently. He had no regard for how this white race judges the black race from their own perspective, informed by their own history, context, etc. All of which he did when he spoke to a class at Stanford University of predominantly white people. Man, he got my loyalty. Because he, like every good pastor, doesn't just say what pleases the crowd. 
He said to his church one thing, and he said to another assembly another thing. All proper applications to love your enemy. And so in the context of applying this passage to his African-American congregation in Atlanta in 1949, after speaking to the judgmental and censorious attitude in his congregation as related to Russia and with reference to the problem of discrimination in America, what would he say? These are his words. Negroes, see the splinters in the white man's eye, but don't fail to see the planks in your own. That is so humbling to me. So courageous. No one knows how courageous someone who has sat in this pulpit. How courageous to risk turning your whole congregation against you to say those words. That's why he was the man he was. That's why God used him. I'm so humbled by him and his courage and his vision. You know King's not equivocating on justice, come on. You know that he was active in advocating for it in the world, of course. But there's a kingdom not of this world whose great gift to the world is to transcend this world with a power greater than any power you could possibly know. A power to transform. You know, I'm going to quote our newly elected president, our president, I guess you call him the president-elect. I thought it was brilliant. Quoted him twice, by the way. But he said something the other day, just, I don't know if it was, impact, it was a nice spin, whatever, but it's so true, and it's so inspiring. He said, good leaders inspire, bad leaders incite. Good leaders inspire. That is, encourage love, encourage just, justice, encourage the well-being of the, of the of world. Inspire to transform a person. Bad leaders incite to all sorts of immoderate passions and strident activities. And so Paul writes right after this let love be given down in verse that chapter 13, verse 9. He says, why am I saying this? For the commandments are summed up in the word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Love does new wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the whole law. What went wrong? What went wrong? Well, if you haven't at least seen, I think, I hope, I pray, an approximation of what God might say to us in Romans 9 and 10. If you've seen it, what went wrong has been going wrong for a long time and escalating. What went wrong is we, the church, failed too many times by getting into the fray of vengeance seeking. And too many times, we have too, personally. We're all guilty. I am. I suspect you are too. And so we come to this table, <laughs> and what do you see? What do you see? You see justice, and you see love triumphing over justice. Praise be to God, his glory. You see justice, the wrath of God, upon humanity in Christ. And you see love. For in Christ, that wrath on this eternal person representing all has been exhausted. So that by grace through faith in him alone, 
you are no longer to fear God's wrath. And therefore, you are transformed by his love and called to go out in all the world and make disciples of Christ. That is the greatest mission we could possibly be on. And we should say nothing and do nothing that would in any way compromise that mission. For it's the only mission that will be eternally reality.